The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Well, a much, much better day on markets today, certainly. It was a great relief rally for the JSE, and uh, we'll talk about that in some detail with tonight's market commentator. But yes, ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire, awards for the sixth year in a row, proudly brings you the money show. ABSA is a registered FSP. It's always uh, nice to get a relief rally, uh, however long it may last. But today, yeah, South Africa was the standout feature on global markets as it posted some solid gains on the, the whiff of promise. Let's not get too optimistic about this. The whiff of promise of uh, Chinese intervention in their markets, which could very well bolster the RAND and help the competitiveness of the JSE as investors tentatively began nibbling at shares once again. JP Luntman, we'll talk to him. Looking forward to catching up. It's been a while. Also, talk Woolies tonight. We'll talk Clicks. We will talk also about AVI and Premier Foods. Uh, lots of trading updates coming through today. We'll talk about the dodgy diesel dealers and what they are doing with putting paraffin in with diesel. Very dangerous to you and your vehicle, but also dangerous to the fiscus because taxes on paraffin are lower than those on diesel. So these thieves are getting away uh, literally with tax murder and then uh, later on uh, with Bronwyn Williams she is the trends translator at Flux Trends we're going to be looking at the desperate attempts by people to live forever or at least extend their lives in a healthy way I mean I suppose it's a human desire isn't it but Oh my goodness gracious me. It's a deep desire, but there are lots of crackpots involved in this uh, in this sector, as there are in many sectors. We'll pick up on that tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I hope never to have to mention this again, but I fear I will have to. Um, if you're Tabi Lioka, who has committed the greatest act of self-sabotage since senior ANC leaders lied about the fire pool and all of the other nonsense around the dying days of the Jacob Zuma administration. Uh, Tabi Lioka, the economist formerly known as Dr. Lioka, being removed from every board now of publicly listed entities. And uh, it all started with Remgro, followed by Anglo-American Platinum, as well as then finally MTN yesterday. This morning from the Presidential Advisory Economic Advisory Panel 2. Not because she was bad her job because she lied Uh, and it's good that she has been removed from these posts all of the companies say she's resigned for personal reasons Um, she has not been able to prove that she has told the truth around her qualifications and in a week the career as she knew it has gone up in smoke and your only currency in the world is trust if you you're going to undermine it yourself you better have a very good reason for doing so you better have some astonishing mere culpas lined up you better apologize until the day is long um, about what you did because it is a spectacular and tragic professional implosion a friend of mine put it to me very well this morning saying that she didn't need to do it what was it in Tabi Lioka's makeup that she felt the need to lie about a qualification? She had a perfectly wonderful MA with a certificate to prove that she'd done the degree from the London School of Economics, and that's impressive. Boards would have fallen over themselves to have her, yet she felt the need to claim a PhD. We put a huge amount of stead in education in South Africa. Not all of it is good and not all of it is useful. Uh, But uh, do we put too much emphasis 
That's a good thing. Oh, we put too much emphasis on qualifications. Qualific- we're qualifications obsessed. Um, and that makes sense in the country where so many people rise to the top of, uh, particularly in the, in the public sector and the political sphere, with very few qualifications. And those that do rise often lie about those qualifications, as we have been led to believe in terms of the so-called pandemic that we have in South Africa, of well, globally, actually, in misrepresenting our qualifications. But yeah, the boards have finally come to the conclusion that you and I came to late last week, uh, that the nature of the qualification was that it did not exist. And that is problematic, deeply deeply problematic. JP is being evasive this evening, so let's flick things around a little and let us pick up tonight first with Wayne McCurry, because I think, I mean, markets are big enough today for Wayne McCurry to jump into the lead. Uh, And Wayne, welcome to The Money Show this evening. Really interesting to see today's markets, because while the rest of the world was sort of erring on caution and worry about inflation and interest rates, we came to life. And I saw a, a comment on social media from you earlier today saying that it is all about China and the promise of a China reset. Yes, I think that's got a lot to do with it. I mean, a lot of our shares were just cheap, but I think the reason why the mining shares went up the most today was because of this proposed China stimulation. Look, whether it works longer term, they've done this a couple of times before. Um, Last time they did it, it took about a year to actually get recognized by the market, all of this money coming into the market. But they've already done two things, as far as I know, is they're starting to limit short selling, which I suppose only a communist government can do, is, you know, limit what the markets uh, um, would normally do. If the market's going down, you would normally get short selling. And they've also told their uh, state-owned companies to buy banking shares, but now they've got this other proposal where they're going to use once again, state-owned companies overseas asset base to fund this uh, share market support. But they've had a terrible market. I mean, China's Chinese shares have not been good for a while yet. I saw an interesting graph um, just this morning saying that if you'd put $100 into the Hang Seng in 1994, I think it was, I mean, it is some ridiculous time frame like that, that $100 is worth less today than it was back then, even though the Chinese economy has been growing in leaps and bounds on an average of 6 7% a year for most of that period of time. Yeah, Bruce, that's once again, you know, you lots of um, investment themes, investment trends actually do work. So a lot of things that seem highly speculative at the start, you know, there's new age, new, new dawn sort of stuff. Uh, you can make an, a, a real fortune out of it, but a lot of them don't work. Eh? You know, a lot of them actually, you know, this, you've got to be in China, you've got to be in India. Certainly the Chinese one hasn't worked. But, you know, the shares are probably cheap enough now to actually take a bit of a, a position there. But once again, it boils down to there's only one thing you get for free in investments, and that's diversification. It's the only thing you get for free. You pay quite dearly sometimes for everything else in investments, but as long as you diversified, you can afford to ride out the couple of things you get wrong. Because what I've learned in investments is everyone's trying to find the next winner. That's not the key to investments. The key to investments is avoiding disasters. 
Here's the thing, though. Uh, it makes the returns that Nuspass has gleaned out of Tencent and Process all the more remarkable, considering that, yes, the Chinese economy has grown, that the tech sector ex- has exploded, and Nuspass k- kissed an awful lot of frogs before one of them turned into the yes. handsome pony ma of Tencent that has delivered the most astonishing investment returns in the history of corporate finance anywhere in the world over the last 30 years. Um, it, it just, I mean, you know, Quisbeck has often conceded that they got very lucky with that acquisition, but you compare Tencent's performance to the performance of the overall Chinese market, and you go, my goodness me, that was way beyond luck. I don't know what it was, but it was beyond that. Now, look, I mean, obviously they've had difficult times and certainly over the last few years with Chinese government cracking down on on the tech companies and how much time you can spend playing games and all of this stuff. So they have had some tough times, but it's been a spectacular investment. Very, very, very strong. Um, also strong today, a couple of the trading updates. Uh, yes. I saw there were updates out of Premier Foods and AVI. We'll get on to Woolies and Clicks in a bit. But our food manufacturing sector, we, we kind of, I think, have been clouded about its health by the underperformance of Tiger Brands for quite some time. Premier and AVI are, are different, I don't know, kettles yes. of fish, baskets of fish, whatever it is. Well, and they're in the uh, fishing business, aren't they? Yeah, look, the problem with AVI is they are in the fishing business. They would do significantly better if they weren't in the fishing business. True. And I've never understood why IMJs in AVI, they are, it's such a different business to their essentially high-end consumer-facing business. But just to talk about their, and, it, and it's, it's extremely volatile, the fishing business. In fact, it's a terrible business, to be honest. Um their snack business in AVI did extremely well. The, 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 the drinks business did so well. You know, they're in a very envious position in corporate South Africa where for the majority of their product lines, they can pass on costs to keep margin. You know, they can actually increase. And they say, we're maintaining our margin. We're upping our, our prices and people still buy it because they love it. So they, they're in a very unique position almost in South Africa where they just passed on the cost and they maintain margin and they don't really suffer on volume. So, I mean, it's an extreme business. A couple of their fashion brands didn't do as well, but overall, I mean, considering the valuation of the company, you know, it's about a 12 or 13 price earnings ratio and given the quality, you know, that's very good value. And that's one of the reasons why the share went up so much today. It was remarkable to see how strongly it performed on the day. AVI up 6%. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the food retailers, um, a mixed bag there. And what's interesting here is that uh, the share prices of Woolies was down and they've got still got Australia problems, believe it or not. Yes. Yet Clicks really performing quite strongly. Yeah, look, Clicks did extremely well. When you read, when you read their results, you almost wonder, are they operating in South Africa? They did so well, quite frankly. I mean, their UPD, their distribution business, you know, that also had some systems implementation problems that they're still trying to, or still trying to recover from in this reporting period. But the rest of the business did extremely well. I mean, it really did well, especially, you know, the main clicks brand did very, very well. And, you know, they didn't moan about consumer expenditure and all the other, you know, factors in South Africa, they managed to perform in that. And when you look at Woolies, I mean, the Woolies food business wasn't bad, but everything else wasn't good, especially the Australia-New Zealand country road wasn't good at all. So the Woolies results 
I mean, AVI earnings are going to be up, was it 18%? Uh, clicks didn't say how much the earnings are going to be up, so it's less than 20, but it's probably also the 14, 15, 16, 17% earnings. And Woolies is going to be down 30. I mean, that's dramatically different, eh? It is. And, you know, I, I made this point before, Wade, and I, I just, it, it stuns me how well Clicks has performed relative to the rest of the retail sector over many, many years. And most South African retailers have felt that this market is too small for them, have felt that this market is too risky for them. Many of them have embarked on fanciful expansion plans yes. over the all over the world, have had their butts kicked and then their trousers taken away from them. Um, and many have come back with their tail very visibly between their legs. Some have yes. stuck it out and I think Trueworths has done okay in the UK. We've got a couple of success yeah. stories building in parts of Australia. But Clicks has steadfastly stuck to the South African market. It has said, we will go to pharmacy, we will go and do retail, we will sell you the chocolates to make sure that you come back at the back of the, and this is me being sarcastic, by the way, but we'll sell you the chocolates at the tills to get your diabetes medication to you next month, and you, they kept the virtuous circle yeah. going of the business model. But Clicks has not messed around outside the country, all, no. focused on this market. No. Very much so. Look, the share price is a bit expensive. I mean, AVI and Clicks, you know, the Clicks's price earnings ratio is in the twenties. You know, AVI is in the in the low teens. But yes, Bruce, I do agree with you in certain terms. I've never, I've personally never quite understood why, when you go in for your bunion cream for your feet, you buy a toaster at the same time. I've never quite worked that one out, but it seems to work. It works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's astonishing um, yeah so Clicks has done well Woolies has not done so well we've got AVI shooting the lights out Premier Foods doing fine Tiger Brands continuing to disappoint and yeah the overall market is feeling a little bit less morbid than it has felt yes. for most of this year so far well I, feel, I think there's been three good days this year we've had a terrible market and certainly in the end of December you know, you know we thought this Fed pivot, uh, interest rate fears, inflation fears are now finally behind us. And we can look forward to maybe not the market continuing with such a massive run as we saw in at the end of last year. At least, you know, not falling, you know, as much as what it has. But it almost feels as though it's the beginning of December again, you know, that, that everyone's still worried about everything. But, you know, I still maintain, obviously, interest rates are coming down. Inflation is coming down. Our share market's cheap and our mining shares are especially cheap. You know, we should have a reasonable two to three year period out of our market from these valuation levels in the environment of falling interest rates and hopefully some sort of recovery in economic growth, especially in China. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we're depending on the rest of the world to get its act together to help us mask our own failings. But Wayne McCurry, thank you from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Yeah, very solid day for the JSE on a day where U.S. markets opened lower, Europe trended lower. The JSE added 985 points, one and a third percent and closed. It's a palindrome close. It's one of those things that you can read forwards and backwards and it says exactly the same thing. Abel was I ear I saw Elba. You Right, read it backwards. It says the same thing. Today's market was the same. 73,337. You read it forwards, you read it backwards. It's exactly the same. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to Leighton Beard, who speaks on behalf of the Automobile Association. Uh, the AA has been responding to reports that the Department of Minerals and Energy has discovered 70 fuel stations and we've got thousands of the things dotted across the country so this isn't an enormous problem but it's still a concerning problem who've been diluting the diesel they sell with paraffin taxes on paraffin are lower than those on diesel so they're pocketing the difference we'll look at the tax consequences of this coming later on but Leighton Beard this is not sensible I mean if it was sensible to put paraffin into a modern internal combustion engine we'd all be doing it what are these guys getting up to this far as you can see yeah, I mean, you know, obviously they are, are thinning out the diesel um, to to make it stretch further, Bruce. Uh, well, uh, you know, thank you for having me on, and 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 thereby, you know, extend their profits. So they're trying to make more money by by producing more um, more diesel with a an inferior product, and it is a huge problem for anybody who uses that in their vehicle. Over time, that engine is going to pick up some big problems. Um, things like pistons and cylinders are going to be affected, and I think for the consumer, um, one of the problems they face is, A, there's no real way to to, to check that you've got proper fuel coming into your vehicle. Um, but even if you do pick up problems and you have a mechanic open your engine up, it may be very difficult to detect that this has been the reason why you're losing power in the vehicle uh, or you're getting that funny noise coming coming from your engine. So uh, it is a hugely concerning thing that's happening and, and obviously we're very worried about it. I mean, the extent of the dilution, does it matter if you put 5% uh, paraffin in or 10%? I don't know the extent of it. And whether or not there's a big syndicate involved across one particular chain, one particular brand, or is this more random as far as you can tell? As far as I can tell, it's more random. And, you know, I, I did fail chemistry at, at varsity, so I'm not going to even venture a guess on that, uh, Bruce. But, but, but explain, yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, explain the science. <laughs> Come on, I demand. Stop it, Bruce. Um, no, no, look, I mean, an, an engine is designed for a specific fuel. Uh, and when you don't put that specific fuel in the vehicle, it's going to obviously cause problems with that. And, you know, uh, paraffin is a, cleaning, is a cleaning agent. It's a cleaning fuel. And it's... It's not designed to go through the process of an engine, uh, uh, an internal combustion engine, as the diesel is supposed to go through it. So when you have this mixture flowing through, whatever the dilution is, there's obviously going to be an element of uh, an an almost antibody that is in in that engine, and it's going to create problems. Now, I think part of the problem that we have at the moment is that, you know, as you rightfully said, you know, we've got 5,000, 6,000 filling stations in the country. We're looking at 70. I've seen reports today that this was 70 out of 1,000, which is quite a big percentage. It's around 7%. If it's over the 5,000, it's obviously less. You're looking at around 1.5%. The the problem is, is that I think we don't know the full extent of the problem. How many filling stations in total the DMRE is planning to still see what the value of the dilution is in, in the diesel that is being sold uh, and, and how widespread that problem is throughout the country. And I think those are some of the questions that obviously we would like to have answered. In terms of giving advice to consumers, if you're buying diesel and the price is much lower than you've paid in the past and it really does seem too good to be true, that should automatically be a red flag to you.
And again, what is reasonable? Because as we know, it's the wholesale price of diesel that is regulated, not the retail price of diesel. The, the, yeah. the petrol price is regulated at the pump and the, you have to charge that price. But the diesel yes. price is different. So you can yeah. be driving down the road and you'll see diesel at 19 bucks 50 And you go, hey, the other, pet, the other station has it at twenty two fifty or whatever the price might be. I'm pulling in here. You just can't yeah, guarantee I'm- what it is that you're getting in your tank. You can't guarantee that. I mean, obviously, you want to go to reputable outlets. You want to go to to, to well-known uh, dealers and, and retailers and, you know, people that you've used before that, you know, other people are using on a consistent basis. When you pull up, you see there's other vehicles putting um, the same fuel you're going to be putting in your vehicle, in their vehicles. You know, those are all things you want to look out for. Um, obviously, if you get to a filling station and the price is vastly discounted, um, you know, nothing that you've ever seen before uh, in terms of, you know, the price that you normally would pay, um, you've got to start asking questions and saying, but is this legitimate? Am I putting, you know, the correct fuel in my car or not? And maybe, Bruce, it's worth paying that extra bit of money just so that you have that peace of mind. There's no guarantee, though. I mean, just because somebody's charging There's the no full guarantee. price no, for absolutely. diesel, I mean, they could be ripping the ring out of the margin even more than the guys who are discounting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and this is what makes it very problematic for consumers and for motorists. You know, you, you, you've really got to be very, you, you've got to have a very keen eye. Um, but, you know, as you rightfully say, nothing is a guarantee. The only thing we can advise is, is just watch out for some of those red flags. Apart from actually taking a sample and having it tested, which is a very costly exercise, we rely on the goodwill of the retailers, the wholesalers, and obviously the, the checks and balances in the system where, you know, the major companies are doing these tests and uh, you know that uh, the fuel you're putting in your vehicle is of good quality. Uh, that's what you unfortunately are relying on as a motorist. Um, again, the DMRE needs to give us some more information on exactly where these, tests, uh, where these tests were conducted, when they were conducted, what the sample sizes were, um, and how widespread they believe this problem to be, and what they are doing to deal with it, and how they are dealing with the culprits once they found them. Thank you, Leighton Beard at the AA. And here's the big problem with this, that you and I are not going to find out who the culprits are because apparently in terms of Poppy, the Protection of Personal Information Act, but the MRE says it's got advice that says it's not allowed to disclose that. And that seems like madness to me. It really is. But it's going to add to the concerns. I mean, James Hall, who um, tweets extensively about African news and is a reliable source of it. I think James has been a journalist um, in, in previous lives. But James Hall uh, tweeting this evening, or Xing or whatever he's doing, posting on his social media feed on the platform formerly known as Twitter, that uh, the, the enormous increase in trade around, well, in travel around the African continent as a result of the troubles in the Red Sea that we've been telling you about for months, we've got this huge volume of extra traffic, and they're refusing to refuel in South Africa, not because of dilution of fuel, but that's not going to help the story. It's because the ports are just still in a mess, and you've got trade unions, of course, as we discussed last night and a couple of weeks ago, pushing back against the privatization of the dirt port because hey we can't guarantee jobs and so until you guarantee jobs we are going to cause havoc for you so yeah some really tough uh, discussions in south africa right now about what's good for the whole rather than simply what's good for particular vested interests 702 bruce is on the money show 
Welcome to the Money Show on this Tuesday evening. Um, it's yeah, There's plenty still to come on the show this evening, and we're looking forward to you spending some of your time with us uh, tonight as well. <coughs> I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Uh, how very rude. On your next Money Show, the Veteran Fund Manager, Executive Director at Merchant West Investments, Pete Fulyun, will be our shapeshifter. He's a man who's got very clear views on the state of the world and the state of markets. He's got three decades of experience. We'll talk about that with him next time on The Money Show. Wendy Nola fighting for your consumer rights as well as the world of business unusual on The Next Money Show. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, before Eyewitness News, we were chatting to Leighton Beard at the AA, talking about this uh, trend. And so far, Department of Mineral Resources and Energy has uncovered... We think 70 cases where fuel stations who will, for now, remain unnamed have been diluting, to greater or lesser extent, diesel using paraffin. Now, Leighton tells us that a telltale sign of this is where diesel is being massively discounted. You should be suspicious, but that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You would think that if you were going to dilute diesel with paraffin, you would keep the price as high as possible so that you can take off most of the money that comes from the sale of the fuel because fuel, of course, is heavily taxed. If you're paying a lower tax rate on the paraffin you're chucking into the diesel mix, well, you can pocket the difference, can't you? That's called tax fraud. Let's get a tax expert on this. And that tax expert is the executive at ENS Africa, Charles DeVette. Um, talk to me, please, if you would, Charles, about this very complex issue of fuel taxes and why it might be hugely incentive. And may, the, the, the retailers of fuel may be incentivized to commit a fraud like this. Uh, good afternoon, Bruce. So, I, I think that uh, you know the illicit fuel trade is sort of one of the less recognised ones in the illicit space, uh, and is probably something that has grown and you know has grown quite a lot as prices have have increased. But in principle. Uh, you know, I mean, fuel and, and diesel specifically is a dutiable good. It's subject to fuel levy. It's subject to, to road accident uh, fund levy at, as well. So, you know, I mean, at least uh, it's sort of 33% of the total fuel t- uh, price is made up of, of taxes in the, uh, in the circumstances. And paraffin isn't. It's not a, not a dutiable good. I mean, there, there are categories of paraffin illuminating paraffin that are you know sort of subject to to other levies as uh, as well but so there's a big advantage if you could dilute the the diesel and uh, it goes much further in the circumstances you end up paying a loss a loss less tax and that has obviously a big impact on the tax take for for SARS as well I mean, this is several rand in the litre because they're road accident funds and they're all kinds of levies. About, when I last checked, about eight or nine rand in every litre of fuel is made up of various forms of taxes, right? Uh, that's right. So, I mean, it, 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 it is, uh, I mean, I think at the moment it's around around about eight rand. So, you know, it's a big number on the sort of pump price currently uh, of, you know, 20-something rand, depending on, on, on uh, you know, where, where you fill up. I mean, the big impact uh, is is the fact that the uh, you know the petrol price is regulated at retail level, whereas the diesel price is only regulated at wholesale level. So that kind of creates the opportunity for people to to take that margin and 
you know, to dilute it. And at the end of the day, they're selling liters, you know, vehicles that are on the road that, that, where, that, that uh, where there hasn't been tax collected as part and parcel of it. Yeah, and so, I mean, one, they're endangering the quality of your vehicle. They're possibly endangering your life if it causes a, a mechanical malfunction at speed. If your car gets up to speed, your vehicle gets up to speed. And on the third hand, and this is where they're most likely to be prosecuted, because SARS is the one organization that doesn't like to feel ripped off. It's, you know, it, 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 it's fairly insistent on that. Uh, one wonders just how much action um, SARS is going to be willing to take on this particular matter one would hope they'd take it incredibly seriously I, I, I suspect that they would take it very serious I mean seriously I mean I think you know they're, they're, there's a lot of taxes uh, involved and uh, I mean you know SARS is very determined to collect every every cent of tax that they can in the circumstances uh, you know as an industry I mean you know there there have been mechanisms to kind of mark the diesel to make sure that it's legitimate diesel and uh, you know, I, I think there, there's been less publicity uh, around that, but there's certainly an opportunity for you know SARS to to go after uh, uh, this trade on the same basis as the illicit you know tobacco trade and and counterfeit goods trade. I mean, there there's a big pot of money for them to collect in these circumstances. And I mean, fuel taxes are a substantial, I mean, they're not at the same level as, for example, personal income taxes or corporate taxes, for example, but a fair amount of money is collected through fuel taxes each and every single year for the fiscus. It's a, it's a considerable contributor to the overall tax take. It, it certainly is, and I haven't got that percentage in my head at the moment. I mean, you know, I think that uh, with the, you know, the high oil price in the last little while, it's been you know less of a revenue instrument or collection instrument that we've seen. But you know, for for a number of years, from sort of 2010, it, it, that was almost the number that was used to to balance the budget at, 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 at the end of the day. You know, it's an easy tax to uh, to collect. You know, it's done on a duty at source basis. Uh, there's control around it. You know, so we did see it creep up quite, uh, quite substantially. Um, and I mean, you know, it's it, it, it's certainly something that, as as the the, the uh, it, it sort of get, gets eroded and paraffin gets into it, into the mix, it, the, the numbers just just come down. Yeah, and also I suppose as fuel prices rise in the way that they have, the incentive is greater and greater to commit the fraud. I agree with that completely. You know, I mean, it, it's something that every time you have a discussion about uh, illicit goods, you know, you talk about alcohol, you talk about uh, tobacco, uh, but you know, fuel never, never really gets to the top of the uh, top of the agenda within the industry. There has, you know, has been movement on it, and you know, technology to to, to try and uh, track it. But you know, I think that we've seen a, I mean, a change in the fuel industry. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, over time, it's not only the big plays that are there. It is possible for for wholesalers to get into into that space, and that's that's the reason that this has uh, uh, increased over time. Charles Devet is a tax executive at ENS Forensics. Thank you very much indeed, Charles Devet, joining us this evening on the Money Show. Seven o two. Bruce is on the Money Show. Have you ever had a walkie-talkie? And I'm not talking about gone off to a tech store and bought two gadgets that operate like cell phones without a bill. And you simply, as long as you've got a line of sight, you can talk to each other and you can play policeman, policeman or whatever it is that you 
like to do on your weekends. Um, no, the sort of walkie-talkie I'm talking about, of course, is South African street food, and it's going to be making an impact in China fairly soon. Um, we're so used to imports from China, it's unusual for us to be sending products other than raw mi- minerals towards the uh, to the Far East. Well, a company in the Western Cape has secured a 300 million rand contract to supply chicken feet to the Chinese market. Chicken feet, the crucial walkie component of the walkie-talkie. Carla Coat is the founder of Ask Carla Coat. It's a specialized trading consultancy. This is a foreign world to me here, Carla. You are an intermediary. You help facilitate trade deals between customers in some countries and suppliers in others. And you've got yourself an interesting niche here um, where you are at the center of the chicken feet trade into parts of Africa and now into China. Give me the backstory, if you would. Yes, um, thank you. Hi, Bruce. Nice to, to meet you and nice to talk. Um, yes, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it is, it has put me in the center of it. Um, so we were, we, like I said, when the call came from, from Westgrow, it originally came through as chicken feed because we had a bad connection, load shedding, all of those things. And I was quite confident in that. I was, oh, of course I can do that. I do maize all the time. And um, <laughs> then when the specifications came through from the client in China, it was, yeah, it was a different story. Um, but like I said, I'm a trade solutions uh, firm and that is what we then set out to do. We tried to find the solution to the question um, and we ended up here where we are able to confidently say that we can supply what they need. We have the capabilities to grow it. There's a ways to go. Um, you know, we still have some regulatory um, hurdles to, to clear, but um, we've done what as far as we can go in order to convince the Chinese market that we are ready and prepared and able to take up the call to action. And I was stunned by this. I mean, a huge chunk. Um, America sold more than a billion dollars worth of chicken into China in 2022. 85% of that was chicken feet. I mean, the chicken <laughs> feet, the, the demand for chicken feet is absolutely enormous in China. And, of course, you know, when you are slaughtering hundreds of millions, if not billions of birds every single year, it's good to have a market for every part of, of the carcass. Correct. And chicken feet is, is, is rich in collagen, it's rich in collagen. I mean, um, they must know something we don't because it's healing. Um, you know, it's really rich in collagen, which is, is, is a major source of, of, you know, everybody is trying to get back that youthful um, glow. So there's yes. that. And um, it's delicious, to be fair, especially the way it's prepared in China. So maybe if we're missing a beat. <laughs> No, entirely. I mean, the thing is, again, popular street food in South Africa is cheap, it's easy to get, and it is available everywhere, but we've got excess supply. What's been happening to these chicken feet up until now that, I mean, or are you simply going to create shortages of chicken feet in South Africa by exporting into into new markets? No, no, it's it's likely not that. And without saying too much, it doesn't create a shortage because there is um, specifics around it that is, is, is a little different to South African street food. Um, it does, and that is why I'm, it, it's so, uh, you know, it's so centered on job creation and empowerment because it creates expansion on every level, on every part of the value chain. This 
this particular contract creates expansion. It creates expansion, opportunity, and growth, as well as transformation. So without saying too much, no, it does not create, it's not going to create a shortage of our own supply. Um, 100% not. I, I can confidently you- say that. Do you have dedicated suppliers? Do you have people at the end of a of a phone line you can phone up and say, "I need every chicken foot you've got in the next month." Start sending. Um, you know, it, again, part of that that supply chain will be different from the chicken breasts and thighs and, and drumsticks Correct. supply chain. I guess. Correct. Yes. So we do have we have established. Uh, like I said, we've established um, that we could do it. We are uh, working on a scale model, a uh, scale growth model. And yes, we, we could, once all the regulatory hurdles have been um, dotted and, and, and crossed, we can then start to send off the, the feet. Um, and so it, it does not leave any bigger problems with what to do with the rest of, of, of you know, the, the, the bird. And I mean, you've already got a proven you know, proof of concept because you, you already trade in places like Namibia and Ireland, Cote d'Ivoire and Gabon and Cameroon. Um, you, you know, you're not just in the chicken feed business. There is a, an entire sort of back catalogue of, of product here as well, in, in addition to maize and rice and soya and other products too. So this is almost like an add-on to the portfolio. Well, I'm not a, a commodities trader. Um, strictly, I'm a trade solutions partner. So oh, yeah. if you if you are trading and there's some sort of roadblock to your, my freight forwarder is unable to accommodate me, you know, I can find the solution. So that's essentially how I positioned the company. And it's just now we've, we've moved into the space where we are actually acting as the intermediary to move the, the commodity between South Africa and China. But um, from a partnership perspective, it means that we are creating solid um, part, long-term partnerships with all the stakeholders across the value chain. Now, we're told that every entrepreneur should have the 30-second elevator pitch. You're at a posh cocktail party. You're wearing your very best frock. You've, you've made an effort. You're having a nice glass of champagne. And somebody says to you, so, Carla, what do you do? You say, well, I am in the chicken feet business. <laughs> um, and I wonder what people's response to that is. I I haven't used that line yet. I generally lead with my <laughs> net worth is my net worth. So <laughs> oh, but that but yes, everybody does that. But exactly nobody else has got. Um, I have yeah. I have a broad network of of partners and um, colleagues who I draw on. So when there is a a like I said a a, a question posed to the company, I I do uh, we we our superpower is finding the solution. And in, in this case, we've done that. And the solution, um, you know, wonderfully affects so much of the industries down, down the supply chain, beyond the poultry. There's the entire supply chain is being affected and, and has the, the um, opportunity to grow jobs and, and, and economies and et cetera. Carla Coates, who is the founder of Ask Carla Coates, she can solve any problems. Bada boom, bada bing. Congratulations, Carla Code. What an interesting tale. Or what an interesting feat. <laughs> F-E-A-T. You get it. After Eyewitness News, our signals feature. We've got Bronwyn Williams lined up. Who wants to live forever? It turns out quite a lot of people would love to live longer, healthier lives. That makes sense. To what extent can we stretch human existence, however? 
with sufficient quality to make it worthwhile. There's an entire industry in this, and Bronwyn Williams will fill us in after Eyewitness News. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Proclaim the election. Let's get it over and done with, please. I mean, the silly season of the sideshows and distracting stories are already tiresome. They really are. I really don't care what happens to individual politicians as they try to blag their way into power. I really don't. Um, If you put yourself in a position where you invite, you know, trouble for yourself, you're perfectly entitled to the full recourse of the law. If you assault somebody else in the process, they too are entitled to the recourse of the law. I'm not too sure that it should be relevant in our political discourse. Unfortunately, it is, and it does tell you about the character of the individuals, I suppose. But it's dispiriting. In a country with so many problems and so many very real issues, the petty squabbles of politicians and who does and doesn't like them and who stabbed who in the back, metaphorically, of course, um, is so tedious. It really is. Um, And, yeah, let's get the elections done, and whatever they turn up, we deal with and we move on. Uh, ABSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House of the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you the money show. ABSA is a registered FSP. How much freedom do you have in your job? I want to talk to you about this coming up in the next half hour. I think it's an important one. Amazon.com finds itself regularly in trouble when it comes to the way in which it manages its workforce, and it's bitten off more than it can chew, it would seem, in France. We'll talk about that coming up in just a bit. On your next Money Show, we've got Pete Fulhoun, who is Executive Director at Merchant West Investments, but far more famous than that. He's been in markets for the last three decades. He's seen booms, busts, and crazies come out of the woodwork over that time. Looking forward to catching up with him. Also, Wendy Nola will be fighting for your consumer rights, and we'll discuss all things that are fascinating and interesting in the world of business unusual. That's all coming up next time on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Did you ever see the movie Highlander? There could be only one. I found it captivating. I was a teenager. It came out. It was this weird and wild and wonderful movie. Try and summarize it from you from very distant memory. But the story of a couple of people who survived for centuries and they can only die if their head is severed from their bodies. And it turns out it's something of a curse as the main protagonist is pursued by others like him. And he lives through centuries of friendships and lost loves and relationships as regular people die off. He just doesn't get any older. He stays forever young. It's not quite Benjamin Button, but it's a similar idea. An interesting idea. Queen got to feature in that movie extensively. Who wants to live forever, they sang in those days. Well, we're heading to a period of greater longevity. Already, lifespans exceed lifespans of previous generations. In some cases, the quality of life improves markedly as well. But we are at a really interesting inflection point in terms of where medical science can keep you alive for longer than perhaps your grandparents uh, could, could manage. But do you really want the sort of quality of life that comes with that longevity? And there's a whole bunch of people that are trying to ensure that you get the quality of life plus the extra years added on. It's an interesting idea. Bronwyn Williams, the trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. Who does 
Bronwood Williams want to live forever? Well, probably not me, if I have to say so myself. I did do a TED talk on this a few years ago. A few mixed reviews because some people do want to live forever. But I think, as you say, the big question here is the difference between lifespans and health spans, which is now coming into the conversation. Because I think it's also worth talking about when we start talking about living longer. The other sort of news that's come out over the last few weeks is that of Canada, who's now released its MAID, that's in other words, its state-assisted dying rates or its state-sponsored euthanasia rates, they're now sitting at around 4% of all the deaths that took place in Canada last year. So an, uh, a statistically significant proportion of Canadians don't want to live forever. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that the quality of life gets worse when you are A, elderly and sickly, or B, poor. And I think that this is the, the sort of crux of all these conversations around longevity and health spans. Is it only for the rich? Or is it, or could it be for everyone, given that, you know, the demand for healthcare is, of course, infinitely, as I say, inelastic. Of course, we all want to be healthy and we all want as much, as much of that health life that we can get or at least most of us do. And that, of course, comes at a greater and a greater cost, particularly as we try and extend that natural lifespan past perhaps what nature had us set us up for. And, and, and governments have got a problem because they've got aging populations and in many, yeah. many countries and many continents yeah. everywhere except except Africa, where we're seeing fertility rates drop. So, you know, people are not being replaced to the same extent. You've got shrinking populations over time in many parts of the world. This is something that's bugging mm -hmm. China in particular. And you've got a shrinking young population looking after an expanding aging population. That's the demographic disaster that many people are really frightened of at the moment. So, on the one hand, you've got people who want to live for longer, and states going, well, we can't afford all of these old people. Yes, especially, and this is of course the case when it comes to particularly state-sponsored healthcare, bureaucrats have to make choices as to where to deploy budget, right? Do you deploy that budget into encouraging fertility, as many Asian nations are now desperately trying to do with extraordinary bribes to make people have babies, everything from free houses to free money to try and get people to do that? Or do you deploy that, that budget into extending the longevity of your aging population at greater and greater cost because every sort of marginal year of life that can be bought through medical science comes at a greater cost, right? So, of course, uh, of course you run into immediate bottlenecks in terms of budgeting and very grim allocations in terms of who gets the money and who doesn't, who gets the increasingly expensive you know, treatments that can extend your life just that little bit more and who doesn't. And of course, the obvious one there in terms of inequality is the people that can pay for it themselves can do it. Like the famous slash infamous Brian Johnson, who's been on the news so much lately, who is a billionaire or millionaire, multi-millionaire at least. I don't think, I'm not quite sure of his exact financial status, but that's neither here nor there. The point is he spends a good few million US dollars every year on his extraordinary regime designed to make him look younger and younger. And he's created quite a lot of debate. I mean, his regime involves something and like that, 30 different doctors just, and 100 just, different polls. <laughs> let's just pause there for a moment, Bronwyn, because until today, you say he's been making the mm. news. He made me mix the news where you um, delve in the deeper, darker recesses <laughs> of the internet. I was, up until today, unfamiliar with Brian Johnson, and it didn't take me particularly long <laughs> to formulate an opinion, and I'm going to give our lovely listeners an opportunity to formulate yeah. an opinion of their own. Um, do, can we have a little taste of Mr. Yeah. Johnson? <laughs> My objective with Blueprint is to demonstrate aging 
escape velocity using the best science, trying to do all the appropriate interventions to neutralize my aging process. 1.8, so even better than last time. So I think my first one was 3.4. A few things have distinguished what I've done to date. As far as I know, I'm the only person that has publicly posted my data. So I'm not saying here's my protocol and believe me, I'm saying here's my protocol. Here's enough, all my data. Enough, 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 enough of Mr. Johnson. Um, he sounds to me like he's bonkers, but I guess there are many people like him who will take all kinds of substances and will seek to extend their lives and almost create a business and an industry around themselves. And therefore, you have this almost virtuous circle of, look at what I'm doing, look at what I'm doing. Oh, look, I'm an expert. I can talk about it, get paid a fortune so I can keep on doing it up until the day I drop dead, at which point you'll all go, oh, he was was crazy and a crackpot, but I won't care anymore because I've had a fabulous life. Thank you very much trying to extend my life. You know what I mean. Of course. No, no, but don't be too cynical, Bruce. I mean, we're not talking about selling selling forex here, right? So he is at least spending his own money, extraordinary amounts of it, of course. And doing some pretty strange things, including getting transfusions of blood from his own teenage son and, he, and, and trying to persuade that same poor teenage son to give the same sort of transfusions to his father. He's no longer doing the vampiric stuff, although that's, of course, the, the classic sort of body, body horror that comes with this idea of an aging population literally now, not just figuratively kind of sucking, not just the economic blood, but the physical blood out of the next generation or to hang on and stay around for a little bit longer. He's not doing that anymore, but that made him quite famous, as does his um, other other regimes that he talks about that are that border on the somewhat salacious. So we can leave that, that one for another day. But the point is that he draws attention to this great inequality in our world, that someone can be so self-indulgent about trying all these sorts of things. And of course, it is his money. He's a capitalist. He made his own cash, depending on what you think about capitalists. You can spend your money on what you like. And maybe perhaps some of the research he's doing is going to be good for all the rest of us, at least if, if you are a believer in trickle-down economics or research in such a way. But the point really does, it brings that pressure as to the cost of what this is going to be. The cost, not just, as you're saying, of sustaining already the aging populations that we have with a younger, sort of with population pagodas, as I call them. It's not a population pyramid anymore. They came in on the bottom. How are young people supposed to support this and to support these increasing demands? And again, that sort of vampire analogy, I think, is is uh, not mistaken. And certainly in conversations with younger people who hear about the great expenses that um, older people require in order to stay alive and have a longer quality of life does lead to not just inequality between rich and poor, but also to intergenerational divides, which is something we definitely keeping an eye on. We've had We've had a lot of that creeping into the workplace at the moment, just to go on a slight tangent, but I think it's related to this conversation. In that for just about the first time in quite a long time, we're seeing hard evidence of reverse age discrimination in the workplace. In other words, employers not wanting to hire the young, cheap one, but actually wanting to hire older, more expensive people because of these increasing generational divides that we're not able to really um, bridge when we have these great disparities in who's paying and who's requiring the resource allocations in society. It, it just opens up a whole new realm of debate and discussion. But let's just zone in on here as the importance of what this guy, Brian Johnson, is doing. And people like him. I'm immediately turned off by it. I just see him as, you know, desperately try- fighting against <laughs> nature. And I suppose... 
you know, anybody who's ever taken chemotherapy is fighting against nature. Medical science makes things possible that mm. were not possible a hundred years ago. And, you know, depending on your beliefs and your your the, your your bank balance and the health of your medical insurer and their willingness <laughs> to keep paying, the vast majority of us would exhaust the efforts within reasonable limits, I think, of for for longevity. We want to stick around, we want to see our grandkids. We want to, you know, have a, mm. a long, fulfilling life. Uh, but it does get to a point where it gets into the realms of the crazy. Are we there in the realms of the crazy, in your view? Well, I'd say as a society, there's pretty good evidence that we are going into the realms of the crazy. Just this weekend, I was watching The Croods with my daughter, and there's a quote in there that I think is so apt for this conversation. One character says to her father, that's not living, that's just not dying, which seems to be where we kind of at when we're spending so much time on safetyism or on preventing disaster as opposed to actually just sort of enjoying the abundance of the, the short amounts of time that we, and, oh, that we do have with each other in this place, in this planet at this time. Well, that was quite a quite interesting way to look at it because... It, it, there's marginal returns to this in terms of life extension, right? So for every additional year you want to extend on your life, you have to make a lot more sacrifices. Of course, there's accidents and injuries that can derail those probability curves. But in general, you know, if you want to make it from 90 to 95, you're going to have to, you know, spend a whole lot more time doing exercising and calorie counting. I mean, calorie counting and calorie deficiencies is one of the, the easiest ways to extend your lifespan. It's the popularity of these Ozempics and stuff of the world, for example, right? But there's all these sort of sacrifices you make, but eventually it just consumes your life. If you were to follow Brian Johnson's regime, even if you could afford it, it's, it's, a whole, it's not just a life. It's a lifestyle that you have to live. And it limits so much of the other things that you could be doing. So it's definitely a question of priorities, not just social priorities in terms of who gets access to resources or not, but also how much of our time we spend sort of planning and preparing for future inevitability or preventing the end as opposed to how much time we spend living and building kind of in the present. That's always, of course, the challenge with any human make decision-making, business and personal life, whatever, the balance between the present and the future. And of course, as economists like to say, you want to sort of have a life cycle consumption smoothing, right? And that's sort of, I think it also applies very well to the longevity curve too. You want to, you want to not just be not dying. You also kind of want to get to live at some point. No, exactly right. You're so busy worrying about not dying that you stop living. In and you know, actually, the the yeah. time of your death is dramatically brought forward. Thank you for that thought-provoking <laughs> input, Bronwyn Williams, exactly. the trend translator and future finance specialist at Flux Trends. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. The Africa Business Report. To Victor Homoswana we go. Victor, of course, is uh, the man who wrote, uh, he's written a couple of books, but uh, his most recent book uh, is all about uh, Africa Bounces Back. And uh, massive issue and controversial issues around the return of artifacts to countries. Um, we've had so much plundering of African artifacts. So we, we know that in the United Kingdom, for example, people focus in on Greek artifacts in particular. There are 
are the Elgin marbles, for example. But we've got so many African artifacts that are sitting in museums, not only in the UK, but other places like France and Germany. And to their credit, France and Germany have stepped up to the Pope, uh, stepped up now and said, actually, it is time to return more of the items we took back to where they came from. It's a big breakthrough. Good evening, Bruce. It's a, it's a heartwarming story in the sense that at least the European countries are leading the initiative. And they are putting us, it's not a lot of money if you look at it, uh, $3 million, whatever. But Germany and, and France are, are saying, let's do our research. Let's find out. It's sort of like do an audit and find out which artifact, which curio, whatever came from which country so that we can account in detail as to what is in our museums and where did it come from. They've already returned a lot of things to Africa. If you look at Italy returning the, the obelisk to Ethiopia, the Germans returning the skulls after the 1904 genocide because they had taken skulls as memorabilia, you know, after that genocide. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of things that have, come, have to come back. But the beauty is now at least it will be orderly. It won't be many countries just throwing claims at the European countries because although you want to restore what was taken illegally or was looted, you also don't want it to be chaotic that everybody can just claim and say you took this from me because then you open room for all kinds of charlatans to to start saying I've got this recovered from Italy I'm selling it for so much it's about restoring the pride of Africans and respecting them but at the same time doing it in an orderly manner let me say this I must give credit to Emmanuel Macron the president of France because since he took over that country he has become so conscious about mending the relations of France with the entire African continent and that is paying off on the one side because la francophonie which is the french commonwealth has grown significantly not only in size but in stature especially because they are admitting bruce countries that don't even speak french or were never colonized by france so it is a diplomatic move at the same time but if it can restore some pride and dignity and respect to african countries i'm all for it yeah, and it's not just about Africa. It's, uh, I mean, there are artifacts that have been seized and stolen from all over the world um, over centuries of colonial rule, of course. Safaricom got itself into a spot of bother the other day in Kenya, and we yeah. know that the expansion of financial services has been hugely aided by the explosion of digital technologies. But when it goes wrong, Victor, my goodness gracious me, it goes wrong at scale and quickly. It is, you know what Kenya and South Africa have in common, Bruce? It's load shedding. And when you have load shedding, a network does not work very well, as you know. And what? let's give the people an idea of how big M-Pesa is. M-Pesa is over 50 million people, if not 60 million people in many African countries. But 30 million of those, I think, will still be in Kenya. So when they had, among other things, the disturbances of the failure of the national grid, you know what happens. But the problem is, in Kenya, it's a lot bigger than it is here in South Africa, the mobile network system, that is, because it carries not only telecommunications as we know it and sharing data and doing that, it also 
accounts for a larger chunk of the payment system. They have pay with Mpesa. They access credit through mobile networks. The bulk of, of, of merchants in that country are paying through Mpesa. And, and the growth of Safaricom, in fact, was in, in, in a large way, in a big way, due to the success of Mpesa. So when it fails even for one day, it is a national crisis, and that's why Safaricom acted so quickly to resolve that, because they know they don't just freeze telecoms and, and telecommunications, they freeze everything. You might as well shut down the, the country if Mpesa is not working, because of the size of the population that depends on this payment system. But because it's in other countries like the DRC, like Tanzania, and, and, and most African countries, Ethiopia, now that Safaricom is also in, uh, operating the network in Ethiopia, you are destabilizing the entire East African, maybe, and large of parts of the Central African region. So it's, it's credit to Safaricom that they were able to inter. But the kind of anxiety that comes with a disruption, even if it's for a few minutes, Bruce, is, is immeasurable in the damage. It will show, it might show in the results when they finally release their financials, what impact this could have had on their, on their bottom line. Victor Homoswana, the author of Africa Bounces Back on The Money Show this evening. I asked earlier how much freedom you have in your job, whether you judged by the results you deliver or whether you micromanaged. And some people love being told what to do. They'd rather implement a bad idea than push back for, I don't know, fear of incurring the boss's wrath or having to take responsibility if their idea doesn't work out. And I guess different jobs require different levels of management. You don't want your McDonald's griller, for example, deciding that medium rare should be the standard of the burger and chuck out the rule book. So you don't want that, but you can also overdo it. And Amazon is often criticized for its management processes. And it's been fined 500 million rand in France for doing what a judge described as excessive surveillance of its workers. Now, listen to this. Amazon France Logistique, which manages warehouses, recorded data captured by workers' handheld scanners. And it found... Amazon tracked activity so precisely that it led to workers having to potentially justify every break they took. It included a system with three alerts in place. So to monitor employee activity, there was one alert triggered if the worker scanned items too quickly or less than 1.25 seconds after scanning the previous item. Another one signaled breaks of 10 minutes or more. A third one tracked breaks between one and 10 minutes. Amazon's saying, hold on a second, you've got it all wrong, but it's hard to deny the data. The data management in big business, of course, is critical in making it more efficient. But my goodness me, it sounds like a vicious place to be doing fairly mind-numbing work in some cases. Physically taxing and demanding, yes, but not exactly the most exciting of jobs. There's a media business that used to, at least in the pre-digital age, treat staff like they were at boarding school. And I remember listening to the horror stories of this particular company made them sign in and out of work in a little book, kept tabs on all of their movements, mostly because, look, I mean, let's be honest about it, journalists are prone to skiving off if there isn't an immediate deadline. And secondly, because they seem to have been very preoccupied with attendance. And there must have been something in it, though, because some of the finest reporters, certainly financial reporters I know, have thrived after leaving that particular organization. They've been remarkably successful. And it turns out that you can force compliance, I suppose. You can make people comply with your city rules and regulations. But can you 
enforce commitment and dedication. You can't. So where do you get the balance between requiring people to show up and do the work and also getting people to say, this is fun. I Actually, this is where I want to be. As Sean Summers said to me the day he took over a pick and pay, I want people to drive into work faster than they drive home. How do you get that culture in businesses, I wonder? Uh, don't be surprised. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Personal Finance brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Uh, Warren, we're often accused of being... I don't know, dinosaur in our views on cryptocurrency. But we we chatted about this on the the day that the ETFs launched. The exchange traded funds in the United States were made legal. I'm just looking at a headline in the Financial Times right now saying Bitcoin has lost 16% of its value over the past two weeks after investors started using the much-hyped launch of Bitcoin exchange traded funds to take profits and exit their holdings of volatile cryptocurrency it's you know again it's not that i don't believe that these things might not be the future but i just don't believe in the hype cycle and i think that's the problem here isn't it you're right bruce and and i think you know if you if you see how bitcoins matured and and not in not in its own way but in the way that markets and investors are are looking at it it seems to me that the parallel between bitcoin and gold is is there now i mean gold although it has weight it also has no intrinsic value beyond what people believe, what they think it's worth. Uh, and and the, the, the difficulty you face with, with Bitcoin relative to gold is uh, it's subject to massive trading. So, so what you're finding now is hedge funds are getting in and, and using massive uh, borrowings. They'll, they'll call it leverage to, to either profit from a, a rising Bitcoin price or, or even um, using the same borrowings and the same leverage to, to profit from the price falling. And they, they might actually uh, try and cause the price to fall. You know, so, so they'll look at it and say, there's been some hype for some time. The thing's been going up for a while. Everyone's been excited about, you know, about these ETFs. Uh, and, and we think there's an opportunity to take advantage of that excitement on the way up. And once people have filled their boots, we, we think we can drive the price down. So, so for, for a, a retail investor, private investor who just wants to buy something that's going to kind of go up in a predictable, stable fashion, that they're getting the exact opposite uh, in, in something like Bitcoin. It's enormously traded, very volatile, and, and you're trading against uh, institutions with massive amounts of money to move, to literally move that market. In, in a way, I just think we, we, we might have seen in the stock market and the bond market from time to time, but I think it's it's multiples bigger and multiples more volatile and, and therefore much more dangerous than, than we've seen in stock markets. Thank you, Warren. Sorry to distract from what we were going to talk about this evening, but I just thought that was an important point to make because I don't like being called a dinosaur. Um, sorry, it comes out of me from time to time. Um, should your <laughs> career determine how you invest what an interesting thought i thought all rules were universal but it turns out if you're a plumber you may invest differently to an investment banker take me through your thinking it 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 kind of arises from from two two kind of separate questions we've received in the past from from investors so so one is a business owner who 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 sent us a mail a little while ago saying you know my, my business uh, is growing at 30% a year and you know it it grows much more reliably and consistent consistently in value than than the stock market's doing and and I can exercise some control over my business you know what why on earth would I want to invest uh, in in the stock market shouldn't I just keep you know piling my money back into my company uh, and I I thought it was a valid 
point. It's a good question. You know, when you, you can exercise influence over something, why shouldn't you keep going? Uh, but, but the issue there is a business owner has, you know, their, 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 let's call it their salary plus the bulk of their net worth tied to one asset. And we don't know what happens to that one asset where, where sheer bad luck could, could drive that, that, that business to, to the ground. You know, just COVID taught us all of that, a, a, a really powerful lesson where, where something major can happen completely beyond your control. And, and if you've been reinvesting in your business all along, uh, and, and that's the only asset that you have, you, you, you could, you could be wiped out and, and then you lose your asset and your income stream. And, and so it yeah. makes all the sense in the world as far as I'm concerned for business owners. Once their companies are stable and and they're they're making profits on in on a consistent basis to start spreading that risk and and investing elsewhere away from their business and especially in 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 industries and sectors and countries that that have very little to do with with, with their business I think you know that's the purest form of diversification I can think of. Um, and I think it applies to, to, to people who, you know, who work in an industry as well. But, you know, even if you're not a business owner, you know, one of the examples I'd think of is if, you know, if you're, if you're in the mining industry in South Africa, you know, if you invest in the top 40 index, you know, yes, you've got some decent exposure to, to check uh, tech companies in China and India through, through NASPAS and process, and you've got some banks, et cetera. But, but gee, you've also got a solid exposure to, to other mining houses and, and resources companies in general. So, so if the whole mining sector, um, you know, takes a hiding for, for a decade, which has certainly happened in, in the last while, it, it could be that you lose your job and then you, you, you lose your, your assets, uh, in, in, in the share exposure. So, so I think 100%, Bruce, you have to, you have to be very cognizant of, of how you invest. And m- maybe the last one, uh, w- would be people that uh, th- that work in very volatile industry. So, so um, you know, I think people, the sports people, would be one. Artists would be another. You know, even people in 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 your industry, in the media industry, where where you might not be earning, you know, kind of predictable salaries for the next twenty five years. You, you know, you might be. Uh, you know, if you're a sports person, you've got a you've got a job that might pay you incredibly well for eleven years, and then and then go, go to zero. You, you've got to be investing your money so that you get maximum capital growth for a long period of time, but understanding that you, you need some you know short term man, money as well in case your career falls over, in case your ability to earn ends. So so I think uh, careers are a huge impact on on the way we invest. Um, there's some careers that lend themselves to career longevity, and I, I'm always surprised to see often when you go and you see a medical specialist, these are often people, mostly men, um, in some cases their late 60s into their 70s, and you say, why do you still work? And they say, well, there's plenty of work to do. I love what I do. I say, but haven't you, you know, can you not afford to stop working? And they say, oh, I could, I suppose, if I wanted to. In some cases, I've had one or two say to me, Uh, Yeah, I mean, focusing on my business rather than my finances and therefore, you know, I've got myself a little unstuck at one point in my life and therefore I I feel the need to carry on. Um, And that's always illuminating. But medical specialists, provided they've got a, a firm, clear mind, good eyes and a steady hand, often they can continue for a long time. And even if they aren't able to physically operate anymore in some cases, they may go and teach and you know, people have longevity there. A lot of academics have got that longevity. Authors, if they can be relevant to their audiences, have got that longevity. There are some trades actually that allow you to work you know, almost in perpetuity. 
that's that's 100 percent true and and you know I'm, I'm just i was smiling when you're talking about the, the the medical specialists because i i find i mean we can't totally generalize generalize for an entire profession but but the medical specialists to me are particularly bad at at saving and investing early in their careers once they've specialized and they've started to earn well they they, they tend to to adjust their lifestyles upwards very quickly and and then continue adjusting as fast as their income rises and it's only late in their careers where they start to take the the investing story more seriously and and that's fine as you say if if their if their health allows and and their 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 love for their profession continues that's wonderful but but if if their health fails or they, they they fall out of love with their profession and becomes a grind. Then that that decision could be a real trap for them. So, but if you are in that position where you've you've got a, a career that's relatively stable and you know, uh, you, you know you're you're an academic, for example, and you can you can kind of continue working. You don't need to be chopping logs in the tree uh, in the forest uh, for, for for you know into your seventies. Then, but by all means, take a different view. You could potentially save a little bit less. You know, especially academics. I think probably don't earn a lot in their in, in the early parts of their careers uh, and and so you know they might not be able to afford to put away a lot of money but what they could do is take a long investment horizon knowing that they, they don't need a huge amount of of short-term money to, to cater for for a loss of a career or loss of earnings that they, they, they can they, they can have a high exposure to shares both in South Africa and globally uh, and then ride out the the big you know booms and troughs that that you see in the markets with with the knowledge that they've got lots of time on their side, uh, and I think they're almost the, the exact opposite end of the spectrum to 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 the sports people, Bruce. No, exactly right. And then uh, you've got other industries which hire and fire more aggressively, um, where the trends move really quickly. I don't know there the tech sector, for example. So you may be a great programmer today, but will your programming be relevant next month? I don't know. And you know, in some sort of high growth industries, this can be quite a hostile and aggressive sector. I wonder how they might respond differently to the world of investing than the rest of us. So, so you know, in, you know, to me, the two industries that that, that treat uh, their their human capital really poorly are the tech sector and the financial services. You know, it's it's so typical that you'll watch them when, when times are good that they will, uh, you know, they'll hire huge numbers of people and and the CEOs will be, you know, uh, couldn't kind of can't keep them quiet about how much they're growing and expanding uh, their workforces, etc. And and the moment uh, things look slightly tricky for them, then all of a sudden it's you know we're cutting headcount by 5,000 in, in, you know, Africa and Asia, and we're cutting by 10,000 in the US, etc. And and it's just numbers that they throw around, forgetting that these are human beings with families and, and, and aspirations of their own. And and so if you're in that position, uh, you know where, where you are in in one of those uh, either of those industries, just understand that your salary is probably quite a lot higher than than the average salaries you know in a, of your contemporaries around you who aren't in your industry, uh, and and it it would be a huge mistake I think to to adjust your lifestyle uh, to to match your salary. You, you need to treat that salary that you're earning as as something that could be very temporary. Uh, and and knowing that you know if if I keep saying you know have a three to six month emergency fund, if you're in that industry and it's volatile, then 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 perhaps you you increase your emergency fund, and and perhaps you 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 focus on on 
staying away from debt as much as you possibly can. You know, w- w- when you buy assets, try and buy them with cash, uh, so that if if something goes wrong in 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 your company and and they do go on a massive retrenchment drive, you're you're not sitting with no short term cash, no no um you know no ability to to kind of fund yourself for a while and masses of debt, and and I think you you've got to be very careful of debt when when your when your career and your industry are are unpredictable. You know, you you should be treating your uh, cash as king there and building up. Uh, a lot more cash than most other investors would, both to to buy assets that you need, and and secondly to fund yourself when when the inevitable happens from time to time. And then I think understanding both those careers are often really stressful, mm. uh, and and so you know you might not make it to 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 your kind of you know late sixties or early seventies, even if the employer allows you to work that that long, you might find that your health just doesn't allow you to to deal with that level of stress for for you know three or four decades. So. So plan on a shorter career, um, you know, and, 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 you know, rather continue working later in life if you choose to and, and you can find a position, but, but don't do it because you have to and, and because you overspent yeah. that, that, you know, earning that big salary thinking that life will carry on like it, like it's been. It won't. It, it, it just doesn't work like, work like that, unfortunately. Talk to me about balance, though, because what I'm hearing, and I know it's not what you're saying, but what I am hearing and what many other people might be hearing is don't have a life, don't have fun, panic, 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 be very careful, save, 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 because the good times don't last forever. Well, they're not really good times if you're not enjoying the good times, if you're not enjoying the spoils of your labor. Somehow in this process of being cautious, of being wary of the pitfalls of your industry and your career, you also do have to be jolling just a little bit and having that little bit of life, that little bit of fun, that little bit of reason for existence um, that, that keeps us waking up in the morning and going out to do the hard and scary and insecure job. Absolutely, and 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 you know, I'm 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 sorry if I'm giving the the gloomy message. I think I'm trying to say, uh, you know, once you've got your safety belt on, and once you've got your 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 parachute, then by all means go skydiving because because you've got the parachute, you've got the safety net, and 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 you'll be you'll be fine. You can live life, and and so you know, in those careers where where you, you your earnings are unpredictable, for example, once you've taken care of the basics, and and you you know, you're earning well. If you can, if you can control your your spending for a period of time, especially in the early stages of your career, it, it allows you to build up capital relatively quickly. Uh, and once you've got the capital and you've got the, the the emergency funds and the the cash nest eggs, it it means that you've got an enormous amount of freedom to 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 make a lot of decisions about where you work, how you work, uh, where you go on holiday, how often you go on holiday. So so it's not about uh, sacrifice and and you know live in fear and and dread and only save and never spend. It, it's just about saying, don't allow the, the way that your salary increases to dictate how you spend. I, I think rather uh, d- decide early on as much as you possibly can to, to let your, your spending rise very little in, in the early days. S- save up as much as you can at the start and then you know, by all means, take lump sums and go and you know go, go on nice holidays, but but don't allow your day to day expenses to, to run away from you. If your if your salary goes up. Let's say 15% a year because you're getting performance uh, bonuses and you're becoming more and more productive. Allow your expenses to grow by 7% a year. That that means you're saving more and more and more, but you are spending more as well. So it's you're right. It's the the key word there is balance, Bruce. It's it's about having both and then being able to decide. And and to me, it's the definition of freedom and you know to be able to decide how and where where you do things. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Warren. Question then from Ray. And this is a lovely, I love this one. I really do because it, this is somebody who's thinking deeply about his team, about his people, thinking about his sort of social responsibility beyond just running his business and keeping people employed. He's thinking beyond their employment. Uh, I'd like to help my employees understand the importance of saving for retirement. We're a small business and don't have a pension fund. How can I help them ensure that they do save for retirement? Uh, I, I agree. I, I, lo- I love the question. And I think there, there, there are two parts to, to, to the answer, Ray. I think the first part is uh, th- th- there is this uh, wonderful radio show that happens every weekday, and, and it's got a particular <laughs> little segment called personal finance. And, and I, I think you should make that compulsory listening to uh, for, for your staff, even if you, even if you pay them to sit there and listen. You know, on work time, it, it doesn't take long for them to, to to kind of build up a store of knowledge and understand the importance of what's going on. And there are lots of other podcasts and uh, websites and books that you can make available to to your staff. And I think that you know the the financial literacy and the financial education is is a portion of the story the the other portion of the story is a little bit tougher to talk about and it, and it's understanding that uh, um you know as human beings we we don't really have a good history of doing what's best for ourselves all the time we 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 tend to only do what's best for ourselves when, when there is a little bit of compulsion when there's a little bit of a of a stick as long as, as well as the carrot uh, and and if you look at countries around the world where where they've got very good savings rates where where they do save well for retirement it's not because they've got some genetic advantage that we don't have. What happens is their governments have a long time ago enforced laws where compulsory saving for, for retirement is a thing. You, you don't have a choice. And, and in our country, that's not the case. But what you can do as an employer is you can say, it is a condition of employment if you work in this business that a portion of your salary will be saved for your retirement fund and and it's not negotiable we'll make sure it's the lowest cost retirement fund we can find it's the most efficient one we can find but but you have to save for your retirement while you work here and if you haven't got something like that in your business now ray it's going to be a tough sell to to go to your employees and say okay you were taking home 100 grand yeah. Uh, you know, uh, every month. And from next month, you're now going to take home 95 and I'm taking five, five rand for you and putting in your retirement fund. But what you can do is at the first, uh, first time you've got a cycle of, of increasing salaries, you can start to do that where you say, one percent of your salary um, is going to now go to your retirement fund, and next year it's going to be another one percent. And over a period of time, the existing staff will be contributing more and more. The new staff—it's very easy. You, if you join this company in February 2024, welcome. We'd love to have you. Fifteen uh, percent of your salary will be going to your retirement fund, yeah. and we, we're going to help you look after yourself. And then you give them all the financial well, education as well. Absolutely. No, no, I would. I, I'm sorry, Warren, to disagree with you on this. And it is the, the financial <laughs> education needs to be preemptive. The financial education has to happen quite quickly and quite actively. And people need to all be on board with this. I know somebody who had gone to live in Canada for a bit. They came back and they went to go and run a farm. And they said to farm workers, okay, we're not, in, you know, we, here's your increase this year, but we want you to give us part of your increase back and we're going to contribute an additional amount of money. And it was small amounts of money to the farm owner. And the farm workers reluctantly signed up and gradually fell off the scheme because there was just the sense you're taking away from me and I'm not seeing any benefit. The, uh, and as try as they could, 
it was a really, really hard sell to these guys who were just wanting the cash in hand because that was the way it had always worked. And when you're changing the habit of a lifetime, you have to preempt it. And in 30 seconds, if you disagree, please do. But you really have to preempt this stuff with some gentle, gentle education on the subject because people need to understand the method in what they will see, may see as madness. It, true, and and so the education needs to start, and it needs to be gentle and build up, uh, and and then it needs to be ongoing uh, and and relentless. It needs to be something that's discussed every every yes. three months, no, no no question. But Bruce, the, the the point of disagreement is at some point as an employer you have to force it because still we won't opt as human beings for for acting in our own best interest all the time. We just don't have a good history. That I will it. give you. I would agree with you. Thank you, Warren Ingram. For, uh, Warren Ingram, Certified Financial Planner, on a Tuesday on The Money Show.